get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. This is the Character and Smallman Podcast on 101 ESPN. Happy Friday. Good morning, everyone. Great to have you with us on 101 ESPN, Character and Smallman. It is coming up on 701 in St. Louis. As a matter of fact, it'll be 701 in 3, 2, 1, Woof. 701, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Happy Friday, Michelle. Happy Friday, Randy, and also happy anniversary. It is the anniversary of the St. Louis Blues winning their first ever Stanley Cup for our community, and our town obviously went bananas. It was great. Think about the fact that the Blues won the Stanley Cup one year ago tonight, and then one year ago tomorrow, they had the Cup at O.B. Clarkson, had that monster party, uh-huh. and took it all over the place, took it to Wheelhouse, and then <laughs> we wound up having the, the, the great parade. What a great time that was, and we'll celebrate the one-year anniversary of the Blues winning the Stanley Cup today. We are going to hear from... Joey Vitale in the 8 o'clock hour, in the 9 o'clock hour, right at the top of the 9 o'clock hour, David Perron, Stanley Cup champ, will join us. And then at 9.30, Kelly Chase will be with us as well. As a matter of fact, uh, it's written here on our sheet, Kelly Chase, Blues legend. Blues legend. Yeah, which he is. He's a legendary figure in Blues history. He is, but I will... Always in my mind, when I first close my eyes and think about Kelly Chase, think about that video, that pregame hype video. Great. Hey, buddy, we're still here. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Somebody made the point the other day, it might have been Bernie, about that video maybe overhyping everybody. And maybe that's why the Blues weren't great at home, because they were just, everybody's hyperventilating because of Kate Chaser's video. That video, you're, I don't know if I've ever seen a better hype video in my entire oh, life. Oh, it was the best. It was the best. And he's and the perfect guy to do it. Perfect guy. And how they incorporated other blues legends into the video. Mm-hmm. But to have him come in at the end and say that the roof was about to blow off Enterprise Center. It, you're right. Maybe we were a little bit too overhyped. But it was, <laughs> it was, you know, the excitement, the energy, the anticipation, the nervousness. There were so many things wrapped up. And then when he said those words, hey, buddy, we're still here, it was, it was go time. So what we want to do is we want to hear from you with the mic drop feature on the 101 ESPN app. You can send us a Rhino Shield mic drop simply by downloading the app if you haven't already done so. And you have a 30-second voicemail that's a studio-quality voicemail that you can send us. And we want to know where you were and what your situation was when the Blues won the Stanley Cup. And you can also send us a text on the the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. But I'm sure that there's a million great stories that people have about where they were, what they were doing when either Zach Sanford scored so that everybody knew the Blues were going to win or when the Blues uh, counted it down to zero and won the Stanley Cup and threw their gloves and sticks all over the ice. I want to know if people cried. I want to know what kind of beverages you were consuming because, you know, it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint in a game like that. You want to have a, a nice cold right. Bud Light or two before the game or in the beginning of the game to ease those nerves, but you don't want to get too messy. And, and you know, you want to be able to remember mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. You want to be able to last until the end. So I want to know I want to know every little detail about where people were when they heard that final horn sound. One tradition that started a few years ago is at our house. 
uh, and this goes all the way back to the 2013 World Series. So we took in a rescue golden retriever in the fall of 2013. And for one of the World Series games, I went to Schnooks and picked up a Cardinals Go-Cards World Series cookie cake. And this dog, we named him Max, uh, he stole it. It was, <laughs> it was, they're very well wrapped. Okay. They, they have the plastic that's uh, on the tray, the plastic that snaps into the tray. He opened it and took the cookie cake. He was unbelievable. He, now, had, he had the greatest sweet tooth of any dog ever. Did he open it on the counter or did he drag it off onto the no, floor? No, he, he brought it, it onto the floor because he, he, he was a counter sir, and he was a tall fella. So he got it down onto the floor and opened it up and, and ate the cookie cake. But that tradition started, and then I believe it was in 2016 when the Blues were on the run to the conference finals. I talked about how those cookie cakes became good luck, and I obviously got pretty big because for every game, I would go to Schnooks and pick up a cookie cake, and it became a good luck thing, and they would win a lot. And so the Blues, at playoff time, would always send cookie cakes here. So nice. point is, for Game 7 last year, obviously, they have sent our friends at Schnooks a cookie cake here, and I had it home, so we knew they were going to win, so we celebrated with a cookie cake. So you were ready to go. I knew they were going to win. So you have the cookie cake. Randy, you would wear your blues shoes. I did. I mean, you had a whole bunch of things working as far as superstitions went, right? I'm I'm a hockey guy, yeah. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So what else? Shoes, cookie cake, is there anything else? Well, at home for road games, I have a blues snuggie. (laughs) <laughs> so, so even in the even in the summer, like on June twelfth, I had if the Blues were going to win, I had to have that snuggie on at some point during the game. And then, if you know how it is, if you get into a certain position and the Blues score, you have to stay in that position. Yes. So I ended that game with like a uh, my right leg was asleep. <laughs> so you go to jump up and cheer and you fall down. Yeah. <laughs> But it was fun, and we want to hear from you. And what's really cool is that after the pandemic, it's not after the pandemic, the pandemic is still going on. It's very, very, very serious. But after the layoff, hockey is coming back on July 10th. We are 28 days away from training camp. The NHL announcing yesterday the training camps will get started. Phase three of the return to play plan will uh, occur provided that medical and safety conditions allow and the parties have reached an agreement on resuming play but at least we have that date 28 days from now july 10th we will start training camp isn't this what we've been waiting for a day that we can circle on the calendar to say hey hockey is on its way back starting july 10th we need a countdown calendar in the studio randy we do let's do that okay i'm in and we'll just exit out every day that'll be a great idea And it'll be fun to talk to David Perron about this because, as we mentioned during our time before we got started here today, we don't know what sort of condition players are in. And the skating condition, the the stamina for playing 60 minutes of hockey, that's hard to achieve. And most players, I would think probably all players, at least recently, haven't really had access to ice rinks. Now, a lot of them are coming back to ice rinks now, but... You still haven't done anything since March 12th, really. Which is amazing to think about. March 12th to June 12th, where we sit today, you haven't been on the ice. That is a long time. Right. And the Blues will come back sooner rather than later. And 
we've talked about the Blues players having ownership, and they understand what it takes to win, and they understand how to get get in condition. Mm-hmm. Although my guess would be that there hasn't been a three month period in any of these guys' lives since they were four or five years old where they haven't been on the ice on a regular basis. No, and especially last season where you win the Stanley Cup, you have the parade, and then you're basically back at it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I would think even in a normal off season, they're getting their work and conditioning on the ice and things of that nature. So. I don't know if some of these guys have figured out a way to get some ice time, whether it's, you know, in their hometowns or whatever, if they've worked out a deal where, hey, I'm the only person that's going to use this facility so no one else is there, keep it you know, strict from a health and safety standpoint. But either way, I would—I can't wait to talk to David Perron because I wonder that exact question. When's the last mm-hmm. time that you went a couple months without skating? And at, while other teams across the league have showed up at team facilities and they have limited workouts, there's a maximum of six guys on the ice at one time, the Blues are not at the facility yet, and they will be. Baseball, nothing new to report. We're hoping that perhaps today owners will have another proposal for players and they can start at least moving towards a resolution. But there is baseball news because former Red Sox manager and Astros bench coach Alex Cora told Marley Rivera of ESPN.com that he takes responsibility for his role in the sign-stealing story But he's not ready to shoulder all the blame. And he said, there's been a narrative out there about what happened. Ever since mid-November, until the commissioner announced the results of the Red Sox investigation, I've read many things that are true and other things that are not. He said, out of this whole process, if there's one thing that I completely reject and disagree with, it's that people within the Astros organization singling me out, particularly Jeff Luno, as if I were the sole mastermind. The commissioner's report sort of explained in its own way what happened. But the players have spoken up and refuted any allegations that I was solely responsible. And he's saying it was not a two-man show, he and Carlos Beltran. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. I think we pretty much figured that out. Yeah, we derived to that. But baseball did kind of blame he and Beltron. And those were the guys that got suspended. But the only reason that they blamed solely those two guys is because they couldn't punish the mm-hmm. players. Yeah, and so, they did get Luno, by the way, too. Exactly. But, yeah, thank you for stating the obvious. And I know in the article he goes on to say that out of respect for the investigation, he's trying to stay out of the spotlight, etc. No, you're trying to stay out of the spotlight because you got caught. You got in trouble. Mm-hmm. You didn't. This is the, the thing about these Astros players and, and Alex Cora. Everybody that was involved in this, it doesn't count for me if you only show remorse after you got caught. If this is something that you engaged in for a, a set amount of time and it was working, so you continue to do it without feeling bad about it, I don't, I'm not going to accept this as, oh, you know, I deserve it, you know, I want to get back in the game. Okay, you're only saying that because that is page one out of the Let Me Back in Baseball playbook. And to back up what you're saying in regards to the investigation into the Red Sox, he said that the Astro situation was just not more than just a two-man show. But he was asked about Major League Baseball suspending the Red Sox video replay system operator, J.T. Watkins. And he also was noted that the team was stripped of their second-round pick. Cora stated that the report, quote, speaks for itself, unquote. He didn't take any responsibility for what happened under his guidance in Boston. It must be a tricky situation for these guys because while they certainly want to publicly accept responsibility because that's what they need to do to go in the redemption tour, you're never you're never going to be in a good place if you try to push back on this or deny it when everybody knows that it happens. But you also don't want to implicate yourself further. You don't want to reveal mm-hmm. anything that might not have been in the report or that fans or other people throughout baseball don't know. So that's why I wonder if he's not 
taking responsibility for other things because he doesn't want to say, hey, I, I did more than you're claiming that I did. If I'm a team that's going to hire a manager after this season, if I'm the Seattle Mariners and Scott Services on the block, or if I'm Colorado and uh, there, there's a chance that uh, I, I could improve upon what I have, I would hire Alex Cora in a blink. Really? I would. He's a really good manager. He's a great communicator. And I'm, I'm willing to put uh, bygones, let bygones be bygones, and move forward. I know that he's not going to cheat anymore because he's not stupid. So... Because that worked out so much. I, you're right, Randy. After Spygate, the Patriots really just, they buttoned it up and said, no more cheating for us. This well, is what happens when cheaters get busted is that they say, I'm done. I'm quitting cold turkey. That's exactly what happens. Or they find a way to cheat the system further. I don't get the sense that he has the arrogance of a Belichick or an Ernie. He did it in two different franchises. But he didn't get caught until the second time. The, the arrogance comes from doing it after you get caught. And he didn't get caught until this time. If you have the confidence in this to do it in not one but two places, and then you get busted, I have no confidence in you that you're not going to do it again. But the thing is, Major League Baseball didn't do anything in 2017 when the Red Sox were doing it, before he was even there. So I think he's really a good manager, and I would be willing to put this stuff in the past. I'm a, I'm a second chance guy. Yeah. Or a third chance guy. I think Alex Cora does seem like a, guy, a good guy. I thought the same thing about Carlos Beltran. I thought I was gutted when I heard Beltran was involved in this because when he was here in St. Louis, he was one of my favorite players when he was here. I thought he was such a, such a stand-up guy. I thought he was such an elegant player. I, he was a guy that you were proud to see him wearing the Cardinals uniform. Mm -hmm. And so to hear that he was involved in this and a guy like Alex Cora, who everybody you talk to that's ever worked with him, adores him. To think that those two guys would be involved in this makes me believe that anybody is capable of stuff like this. Now, I will tell you this. I wouldn't, if I was the owner of a team that, and I hired Alex Cora, I wouldn't let him hire Beltran as his bench coach. <laughs> That's where you draw the line. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to. I don't need that team together again. Yeah, you know, it's like the thinking face emoji, yeah. Randy. As soon as you would even suggest that, I think everybody would be like, hmm. Especially when I say, so what do you need? And they're walking me through the clubhouse area, and we get down to the tunnel towards the dugout, and they said, I need a TV right there. I, I probably don't provide that. No, Randy. See, they have to evolve. They're not going to go back to the exact same uh, setup as they had before. It's going to be something way, way more undetectable. Yeah. Hey, you guys got an electronics firm that provides buzzers? Hey, what about some trash cans in the dugout? <laughs> Can we get a few more of those? So, Alex Cora, uh, not really a mea culpa. But saying it was, it wasn't just us. There were, the players had to do it too. Few things have incensed me more than the Astros' arrogance in the wake of this. You, the players, the players are the worst. The worst. I. I miss baseball for so many reasons. I was very much looking forward to them having to go on this this boo tour where they were going to get absolutely yeah. destroyed by every fan base that pitcher. Because to me, if you do something like that and you don't feel sorry for it, I want you to bask in the consequences. I want you to every game have to feel what you did to other players, to fans, and to baseball as a whole. And they're not going to get that. No, unfortunately. Hopefully, well, the problem is you don't have as many fans next either. So they really aren't going to bear the brunt of what no. they should have. They really wiggled away with this one, and it bothers me. Next up here with Carriker and Smallman, one year ago today, the Blues won the first Stanley Cup in franchise history. Where were you? What were you doing? And were you confident 
at 7.15 in the morning on June 12th of 2019, were you confident that the Blues were going to win the Stanley Cup? Your mic drops and your text to the Air Comfort Service text line next with Randy and Michelle on 101 ESPN. on January 3rd. History will be made tonight in Boston. Get up, St. Louis. Get on your feet. Raise them high. Five seconds to go. And the time winds down. They did it. It's over. The game is over. The series is over. The wait is over. And the St. Louis Blues are the Stanley Cup champions for the first time in franchise history. On this one-year anniversary of the Blues winning their first Stanley Cup, we will air Game 7 again tonight here on 101 ESPN. So you'll be able to hear that call and hear everything unfold in that 4-1 Blues victory in Game 7 last year. Okay, Michelle was actually over at Enterprise Center Uh one year ago tonight with your dad. Tell us that story. It's actually a crazy story. So the Blues lose Game 6. We're all despondent. Mm -hmm. And I get a call from a friend who says, hey, I have a ticket to game seven and a plane ride for you if you want to go to Boston. And I thought, all right, well, let me weigh these options. If what time are we going to be back? Cause I was on the morning show mm-hmm. with Bernie at the time. And he was like, probably like three in the morning. We'll get you back. And I thought, okay, should I do this? And then the more I thought about it, I said, you know, I was away in Connecticut. And the reason I moved home was to have moments just like this with my dad to ha- to be able to go to the PGA with him, to be able to go to Bush Stadium with him. And I thought, the only reason that I love sports, the only reason why this game means anything to me is because when I was a little girl, my dad used to take me to games. He would take me to the old barn, and he would dress me up in a blue shirt, and we would watch the games together. And so I said, you know what? No, I got to watch this game with my dad. I would ne- I would be stupid if I, if I flew to Boston and I didn't watch this game with my dad. So I called my dad. I was like, all right, where are we watching game seven? And he's like, I don't know. You want to come to the house? Whatever I say, no, you know, we got to be with the city. If they win, we've got to be in the city. So Enterprise Center was completely sold out. So I got us tickets to the watch party at Bush Stadium. Mm -hmm. And we, my mom, my dad, and I, we drive downtown. We park the car. We're walking to Bush Stadium. And David Payne, who used to run the board here, texts me and was like, hey, I'm at Enterprise Center. And I wonder if you can get in using your press pass. Like the press door is open. Mm -hmm. I just walked past it because I really wanted to be at Enterprise Center. So I go, you know what? Let's just try this. So I walked right up. I said, hey, I have my press pass. They're like, oh, hey, Michelle, whatever. They were able to let us in. We went up to the press box. There was no one there because all the press were in Boston. Mm -hmm. And my cousin is there, my cousin and her husband. She texts me, hey, there's three empty seats next to us. I don't know if somebody's going to show up, but you should come and sit with us. So we go, the entire place is sold out. The entire place is packed. We walk down and we sit right in the section, right behind one of the goals with my cousin. There's three empty seats and we sit there with them. So I kind of had a feeling once all of this stuff started happening, that it kind of felt like fate and destiny and that it was meant to be. And I thought, okay, wait, the hockey gods are putting us all together, our family together in Enterprise Center for this moment to happen so and obviously we know what happened but when I look back at that I just am like the fact that I was not out of town I was with my family we got into Enterprise Center and we sat next to my cousins I should have known from the time the puck dropped that the Blues had it in the bag the way the world works is amazing a text from the 314 I watched with my wife and son and got to see the first ever Stanley Cup in his first year born. After that, I went to Dick's Sporting Goods with some friends and bought one of everything (laughs) Then went to a gas station and waited until four in the morning to get the morning newspaper. 
That's quite a night. I, and by the way, I was kind of disappointed with the official Blues. Uh, it wasn't their fault. It was the league. Their official Stanley Cup champions hat. Because I got out the next morning, too, and bought one of those hats. And I've still got it. But I, I got another one later that I like a lot better. Well, you know, they only have one one design ready to go. Yeah. You know? But... Tell me where you were. I want to hear your story. Oh, I've, so normally during the playoffs, I was watching um, downstairs in the basement. I've got a theater room downstairs. But for this night, everybody is watching upstairs. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll hang out with the family. And so uh, everybody was upstairs in the family room watching on that TV. And then once the Blues got the lead and scored the first goal, I couldn't leave. And then Petro <laughs> scores at the end of the first period. And then I, I say, I can't leave this. And then when Shen scored to make it 3 nothing, that's when I had moved my leg. And so I sat with my, one <laughs> leg crossed under another. And then obviously 3-1 and then Sanford 4-1. And so I, I stayed in that same position, uh, kind of physically miserable. And, <laughs> but emotionally uh, full. Uh, well, and hoping that what... That that team that had broken my heart so many times, I hope they didn't come up with the epic way to do it one more time. So there's a video. I'm going to retweet it later. But um, Dave Payne, as I mentioned, was there with us. And my dad and I were standing on the step as the as the final seconds were counting down before the horn sounded. And it was obvious, you know, for the past five minutes, the Blues were going to win the cup. So everybody was just kind of waiting for this moment. And my dad, until the final horn sounded, wouldn't cheer. He was just like, <laughs> you don't get it. Like, there. <laughs> Something could happen yep. until I hear that horn. I am not even going to allow myself to, to really even consider that this is going to happen. And to me, that was just, just such a perfect cherry on top, knowing how many generations of blues fans had been tortured and that until that final horn sounded, they wouldn't even allow themselves to go there. Let's get a, a couple of mic drops in. This is Mike on 101 ESPN. Hey, Randy and Michelle. Yeah, I'll never forget it. I was at home with my wife. My father-in-law passed away a little over a year before that. Um, I lost my father when I was little. Uh, it was extremely emotional. We were both crying, hugging. Just, uh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience for all of us. And uh, so many people cried. Michelle, that video of your dad crying is incredible. Uh, Mike, uh, here's one from the 314. I was in Panama City with the in-laws passing around Crown Apple, thought of my <laughs> grandpa, and cried a little. LGB. Oh, man. The tears were flowing. Yeah. It was... So, Randy, when we were together and we were at Enterprise Center for the game where the Blues advanced to the Stanley mm -hmm. Cup final, I felt like that was more of a party. Everybody was just out of their minds, going crazy. Game 7, at least from where my vantage point at Enterprise Center, was more emotional. It was, people were going nuts, but it was just, I am overcome with emotion that I cannot believe this is happening. I think there's a couple of things. Number one... Just being the top at the top of the mountain was something that I clearly never thought would happen. Mm -hmm. So I think there were, I think most Blues fans felt that way with the way the franchise had unfolded. I just think we all thought, yeah, they're never going to win. And so I think that was part of it. And then, like we're talking about, there were so many people that never got to see a Blues championship. So many people that have people close to them that never got to see it. And that's the people that they were remembering when the Blues won it. Is, you know, I wish my grandpa, I wish my dad or mom would have been around and alive to see this. Because it's something that we never thought would happen. 
And then it did. Yep. Let's get one more mic drop. This is Michael on 101 ESPN. I remember sitting in the living room. My dad came over to my house. He's 59, Blues fan his whole life. Sanford scored that goal. We pretty much knew, but we're also Blues fans, so we also know. And when that clock struck zero, all I can remember was screaming F-words, lots of F-words. And my dad just kind of sat in shock. And I looked over, and he was crying. And we both cried and hugged, and that was pretty much it. Insane. That's what sports does. It's incredible. Incredible. I I can't even talk about it without a smile from ear to ear. I still can't believe it happened. And I've never been married. I've never had kids. But I feel badly if I do have a future husband and future kids because that will still remain probably the greatest day of my entire life. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong wrong with that. Hey, we're going to hear more of you and more of your texts coming up at the top of the 8 o'clock hour with our fresh take because it is a momentous day in St. Louis, the one-year anniversary of our first Stanley Cup. But we're also going to focus in a little bit more on Sunday night's documentary, Long Gone Summer, and our friend, former Cubs manager Jim Riegelman was managing Sammy Sosa at that time. We're going to talk to him next on 101 ESPN. Now it's time for Long Gone Summer on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Tracy Bibb and Allstate Insurance. Text quote to 65780 to see how you can save. And you will see Long Gone Summer, the documentary about the summer of 1998, the home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. That will be on ESPN TV. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carricker, and it's a pleasure to go to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And a guy who was the Cardinal Farm Director in the late 80s, a Cardinal coach under uh, Whitey Herzog and Joe Torrey, and a longtime Major League Manager and Coach Jim Riggleman joins us now on 101 ESPN. Riggs was the Cubs manager in 1998. And Jim Riegelman, it's been a long time since we spoke. It's good to have you with us. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Jim, we are so excited for Long Gone Summer. There's so many questions that we want to dive into you talking about this documentary and that time in baseball history. But first things first, how surprised were you that Sammy Sosa ended up being the guy to challenge Mark McGuire in this home run race? Yeah, you know, I think I was surprised that anybody would... would uh, challenge, uh, you know, Roger Maris, challenge uh, Mark McGuire, you know, uh, Sammy, you know, we knew he was, uh, had a propensity to hit home runs and he had, he had hit 30 for several years. And uh, I think the previous year he was on a pace to um, hit a bunch, you know, um, maybe it was 96. He was, he had hit like 40 and he got hurt with a couple months to go. So, um, you know, we, we knew he could hit him, but um, we didn't, you know, when it came right down to challenging the number 61 that that Maris had, uh, I don't think anybody thought anybody was going to catch it back in those days. Jim, what do you think the difference was when the calendar flipped to June and Sosa hit the 20 home runs in June? Well, you know, it, it, notoriously in Chicago, uh, it's early in the year. The ball doesn't fly as well. You know, you get into later May and June and the wind starts to turn off the lake and you get some balls in the air and they got a better chance of going out. I know I saw Ryan Sandberg hit a lot of balls in April and May one year that would have been homers that, uh, you know, turned into outs and, um, uh, you know, Sammy got hot at the right time as the wind started to blow out. And, you know, he had the tremendous power anyway. So, um, you know, the result was 20 home runs. I don't know that he hit more on the road or at home, whichever. But, 
you know, one thing I will say about that, I, I always let people know he hit 20 homers that month, and it's a tremendous accomplishment, but it just accentuates it's a team game. That's the only month of the season that we had a losing record. Wow. Wow, that's so interesting. And it is a team game, and you were managing a team that ended up going to the playoffs. But how was that uh, to to balance both of these things? You have a team that you need to keep focused about the games that they need to play, but then you have this entire other, you know, for lack of a better term, circus going on with media everywhere and this home run chase. So from a managerial standpoint, how did you balance both of those things? Well, you know, that's a great question. I get asked that a lot when I, as we approach this uh, long gone summer episode. And the answer is really Sammy handled it and the team handled it. The, myself and the coaches really, uh, you know, the, we had a great group of veteran players. They handled it well. Sammy really, you know, the demands that were on him and the demands I'm sure that were on Mark in St. Louis were, uh, you know, just uh, over the top. And and they handled it. Uh, Sammy had a smile on his face. He looked forward to the talk with the media every day. Um, the rest of the team was able to go to work. You know, the rest of the team wasn't have to answer as many questions as the uh, games got more and more important down the stretch and we were trying to get into the playoffs. Uh, that was always our focus. No, nobody's focus was ever... Let's let's get Sammy these homers. You know, if Sammy was going to do that or not, that was secondary to us trying to get in the playoffs. And uh, but but Sammy taking the the uh, brunt of the attention from the media really helped the rest of the club. Jim, we know that Sammy has a larger-than-life personality anyway, but do you think the absence of that pressure that he was supposed to be the guy to get this done, the fact that he just kind of came out of nowhere and entered this race, allowed him to be that way, to show up at the ballpark with a smile on his face every day and handle the media the way that he did? I'm I'm sure that did. You know, um, Mark, you know, was a big man, 6'3", 6'4", whatever he is and imposing and had this history of hitting home runs and was just getting better and better. So, you know, if if anybody was going to do it, it was probably going to be Mark. And so Sammy was able to kind of just sneak in there and, and do his damage and, uh, uh, you know, m- maybe not have the pressure on him to do it that Mark did. Former Cubs manager Jim Riegelman is with us on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. And Jim, it, it was interesting to me how, and we'll revisit this, by the way, on Sunday night, how there was the game within the game. There was a weekend series in Wrigley where those two went at it and Sammy hit one and then Mark hit one. And then obviously here uh, when McGuire hit number 62 and... Uh, as a manager, you're laser focused on the winning the game that night. Were you able to enjoy, from a baseball fan's perspective, what was happening before your eyes? I was, you know, I enjoyed it. You know, once it's kind of like what you know when Kerry Wood was striking people out. You know, he's a rookie. Uh, you know, you you enjoyed it. You kind of watched the numbers and so forth, and we we were able to do that with Sammy. But again, it was secondary to. Um, you know, everybody's focus was, you know, Cubs getting into the postseason. And um, it was a, a three-team race for the wild card. Pretty much it was the Mets, Giants, and us. And, um, you know, it was – I don't think at any point in the last two months of the season was there more than a game-and-a-half separation. So every game was monumental. And um, it was, um, you know, 
it was uh, the home run race was secondary, but we certainly did enjoy it. Jim, as a media member at the time, I will admit that I was completely naive to PEDs, and Mark has subsequently admitted to using PEDs. Uh, what was where? What was your position then? Were you as naive as I was? Did you have suspicions? What was going through your mind? I was very naive about it. And uh, I, don't, I don't say that as an excuse. You know, I just it just wasn't really something that uh, people were talking about. And I shouldn't have been naive about it because I can remember uh, before 98 seeing some players who were a lot bigger than they used to be, you know, and, and I won't name names, but I'm just I remember seeing guys and thinking, man, this guy is been in a weight room or something, you know, and, and then, you know, somebody would throw that word out there, steroid. And, and I really did not analyze it. I didn't think about it when it was the opposition. So the, the other thing that came into play, and I, I probably will end up have said this in the, um, in the long gone segment, you know, a very popular product in those days was creatine. And we had a number of players using creatine, and our trainer was very much against it. So he was he was impressing on me, and I would I would mention it to players. Hey, be careful with that stuff. Now it's it's legal, but it it really it it got guys bigger, and they stayed bigger. You know, they they but it it really had a propensity to have guys end up pulling muscles and so forth. So when I would see a big guy. I thought, man, this guy is overdoing it on this creatine or something. You know, I did not really think in terms of steroids. Jim, a lot of uh, storylines are being brought back into focus with this documentary airing this weekend. And one of them is that Sammy Sosa hasn't been back to Wrigley in a long time. And it's getting a, lo- a lot of pub nationally. And I know Sammy Sosa was on ESPN 1000 and said he would love to have that reunion at some point. Do you think that that's something that should happen, a reunion between Sammy and the Cubs? And do you think it will happen? Well, I, I think it should. I, you know, it, it's not my place to say. I mean, you know, it, it's it's the Cubs, um, you know, ownership and so forth. That'll be their decision. You know, but I can only give my opinion. I just really hope that Sammy is welcomed back into the stadium because, um, you know, he he did so much for the city. He did so much for the ball club. Uh, he and Mark brought baseball back in 98 after after the 94 strike. They really did a lot to get fans interested again. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to see things happen um, once they're gone. You know, someday Sammy's not going to be on this earth like all of us. And, and I, I would like to see Sammy honored in Wrigley Field, uh, you know, while he can still enjoy it and the fans can enjoy him. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of other uh, things that are involved with that. And uh, I certainly understand everybody's uh, thoughts on it, but but that's my thoughts. Finally, Jim Riegelman, I want to ask you a bit about baseball in 2020, the the analytically inclined baseball that we're in. And the Cardinal manager, Mike Schilt, I'm sure as you know, is like you, a protege of George Kissel. George was a mentor of of Mike's and, and yours. How much should Cardinal fans take to heart that what George Kissel taught is still being taught in baseball by people like yourself and Mike Schilt? Well, I I think that, uh, you know, George's legacy is that, that so many under him, you know, you had a great guy instructor there in in St. Louis that just retired, Mark Dijon, and he was uh, a great mentor for uh, Mike Schilt also. And they carried on the legacy, you know, Pop Warner, 
so many of the other guys who were around with George uh, carry on the legacy of George Kissel and other people, the antenna of people, uh, the, the tree of uh, people that uh, George taught around baseball are still teaching it. And, you know, one of the things that George always said, and I really took to heart, George was in his 80s. And we would be out on the field, and many times George would come up to me and he'd say, I learned something today. Mm. And, you know, he, he, was, he was in his 80s. He wasn't stubborn. So anything that's taken place analytically, believe me, George would be receptive to it. He would uh, use it. He would go back to his basics and, and uh, intertwine the two, I'm sure, because, um, you know, George was, was all about information. And, uh, you know, if you could get information and pass that on to players, then that was that's what George felt his job was to do to help the St. Louis Cardinals. Jim Ringelman, great to hear your voice. Thanks so much for your insights on Long Gone Summer and other things. And uh, keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take care. That is Jim Ringelman. He has managed five teams and really got a raw deal in Washington. He, he should have been retained in Washington, and they would have won a world championship sooner had they kept him as their manager. But everything happens the way it's supposed to, Randy. You know that. We yeah. just talked about the Blues and their weight. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he, last year he was the bench coach of the Mets. I hope that, uh, I, I don't know if they've kept him around, but I hope they do. That was Jim Riggleman on 101 ESPN, and that is Long Gone Summer. You'll see it Sunday night on ESPN TV, and uh, we can't wait to see it on Sunday night. And thanks to our friend Tracy Bibb who has brought us Long Gone Summer interviews all week long, the home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, and a lot of interviews available for you at 101ESPN.com, including our interview with Big Mac yesterday. Long Gone Summer Week on 101 ESPN, brought to you by Tracy Bibb and Allstate Insurance. Text the word QUOTE to 65780 to see how you can save. And by the way, speaking of 65780, if you'd like to participate in the fight at 830, you can do that as well. Sign up to participate in the fight by texting the word FIGHT to 65780 as well. Take it or leave it. Coming your way next on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Take it or leave it. Give us your feedback now by texting 65780. It's Take It or Leave It with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Thanks for your take or leave it text to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. And with the Teolis of the day, here's Colin Surrey. Colin, take it away. A New York Times best-selling author went from zero poker knowledge to poker champion by studying the game for 10 plus hours a day for a month straight. She recently won a tournament for $80,000. Take it or leave it. If you invested the same amount of time into a task that you have been trying to master, you too could become as skilled as she is at poker. I'm going to take that. I don't know that I would. Uh, I, I don't have the drive to do something mentally like that for 10 hours a day. No, I don't either. And, you know, I'm trying to think of something that I would want to. I would love to be fluent in another language. Mm-hmm. I still don't know if I studied another language 10 plus hours a day for a month straight, if that would do it. I think you'd do pretty well, especially if you had somebody to help you. I think that's one of the things with poker. If you see, you can play poker on the computer. Although you can learn a new language on the computer too. So maybe that's what you need to do. I just say I can't focus for that long. I don't have that ability. Also, reading this story, take it or leave it. You should have done more during quarantine. 
I'll take that. Yeah. Unless you won 80 grand. That's what I'm saying. 80 grand. I mean, I should have just really dedicated myself to something that would pay dividends during that time. The Sopranos creator, David Chase, accidentally spoiled the infamously cryptic series finale of his series during a leaked interview for a recent book. I will not spoil the ending for our listeners because they may want it to remain ambiguous, but knowing actually what happened to Tony at the end of The Sopranos would ruin the ending of that series for you. Take it or leave it. I'm going to leave it and I want to know what happened. Don't don't worry. Have you ever watched the show? Yeah. Okay, so you know, fade to black, right? Yeah, it was great. So the... If you don't want to know, turn the dial for 10 seconds and then come back. The debate was, did he get away or did he die? And David Chase accidentally slipped and called it the death scene. Okay. So, implying that Tony was was the guy behind him, yeah. Yeah. Okay, the guy that went into the bathroom. Or something happened, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to leave it. It doesn't ruin it for me because even though he's calling it the death scene, (laughs) I'm choosing to believe that he didn't die. Because, and or if he did die... Tony Soprano was the boss. You could not watch that go down. You need to either, right. even if you know he dies, it doesn't ruin it for me because fading it to black was so respectful for Tony saying, even if this was going down, we can't show him that way because he's he's the boss. Yeah. And then the guy who played him died anyway. I know. So sad. Yeah. R.I.P. James Gandolfini. Yeah, right. Thoughts and prayers. Let's pour one out. From the 309 on the Air Comfort Service text line 65780, take it or leave it, we see a Major League Baseball player hit 50 home runs and steal 50 bags in the same season at some point. Take it. Take it. Mike Trout. We're getting back to the stolen base now. Oh, wait. So then I'm going to leave it because we won't see that. (laughs) Yes, we will. No one watches Mike Trout. Oh, okay. (laughs) Great point. So we will he's read the mo- about. He's the most yeah. invisible superstar yeah. to ever exist in any sport ever. Yeah, we'll we'll read about it. Might not be Trout because he's closing it on thirty, but there will be a player that goes fifty fifty. Yes. Amid protests in the Charlotte area about racial injustice, former Panthers owner Jerry Richardson had a statue of himself removed from the front of the Panthers stadium. Even though he sold the team in 2018, new ownership was contractually obligated to keep the statue in front of the stadium. Creating a 12-foot statue of yourself is just really lame. Take it or leave it. I'm going to leave it. That is awesome. (laughs) You want to be remembered. You want to have a legacy. Now, you probably don't want to have Jerry Richardson's legacy, but you're a good person. And you want to be remembered, then what better way than to have a statue out in front of a stadium? I am taking it. This is so lame. This is like a nickname, Randy. You can't give yourself a nickname. Some It won't stick. People have to give you a nickname. Just like you can try and force this narrative about your legacy by creating a statue. And guess what? Everybody's going to remember you as the guy that creepily wanted to shave people's legs. That is what you're going to be remembered for. So it's lame that you have to try to manifest this legacy for yourself. And it's not going to work. Here's the thing, though. Future generations aren't going to know who built the statue because the statue doesn't say on its base Jerry Richardson built this. So actually what's going to happen to those people that aren't even born yet is they're going to go to what Bank of America Stadium, whatever it's called Mm -hmm. right now or what it will be called then. When they're 25, they're going to go to that stadium and they're going to say, see that statue of Jerry Richardson and say, you know, he must have been a pretty cool guy because somebody built a statue for him. They're going to research who built the statue. I think that people are going to say that and then their parents or friends or whomever is with them is going to say, no, no, 
this guy sucked. <laughs> you are one pathetic loser. And he commissioned this statue and paid for it himself. Think about it. Okay, when you go to a park, people, there's benches, you know, this bench in honor of Randy Carricker or whatever it will be. And that's because someone thought enough of you that they wanted to make sure you're memorialized in some oh. way. If it says this bench honored for Randy Carricker, donated by Randy Carricker, that's lame. See, in an ideal world, you'd like to have somebody else commission it. But if nobody likes you enough to commission it, commission it yourself. And if, hope. if nobody likes you enough to commission it, there doesn't need to be a statue of you. This being said, Said, there was one guy, one guy that was, he actually got kicked out of the league. Jerry Jones kind of fed some information because Jerry Richardson was the guy among those NFL owners that wanted the Rams to stay in St. Louis. I was very sad when the information about what a bad guy he was got leaked because he was the one that rode for St. Louis. And I always had a soft spot for him. And then that turned quickly. Um, but take it or leave it, Randy. Sam Kroenke will also... Not only commission a statue of himself, but put it in a future owner's contract that it would have to stay at the stadium. I'm going to leave it because he knows, number one, he doesn't want to pay for it. <laughs> Good point. Great and, point. And number two, he knows because he puts that thing on his head every day, how difficult it would be to replicate that toupee that he's wearing. True. One more for you. Take it or leave it. If there was a statue of Stan, it would be vandalized. Or, excuse me, of Cronky. Of Cronky. Yeah. Let's not call him Stan. If there was a statue of Cronky, it would be vandalized within the first week. Yeah, get me to L.A. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Your ticket's booked. Yeah. Since basketball writers are sitting around bored at home, they've started writing think pieces comparing LeBron James in high school to his son, who is 15 years old and just finished his freshman year of high school. At this point, comparing LeBron to his son is very unfair. Take it or leave it. No, he always, I'm going to leave it. You always compare a father to a son. I'm also going to leave it because if you didn't want him to be compared to you, LeBron, you shouldn't have named him Bronny. Bronny, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. As an Illinois fan, didn't you compare, was it uh, with Jeffrey that went to Illinois? Michael's son? Yeah, Jeff Jordan. Don't, don't you think that's natural? Yeah, you know what? I didn't do that to him because there's no comparison. No, there isn't. But initially, you're saying, oh, it's Michael Jordan's son. And you watch him play basketball. I mean, what are you going to do? Just say, oh, that's nice. Could do that. I mean, he wasn't even the star of the team. I know. But Whereas at least Bronny's the star of his team. But my, my get the guy. You're thinking, wow, we got Michael Jordan's son. He's going to be good. And that's the same way we're going to feel about Bronny Jordan is, wow, we got LeBron James' son. It's. I wonder how he compares to his dad. See, I the difference is is that there was there's been hype surrounding LeBron's son mm -hmm. for a long time. He plays on the on these specialty teams. There's you know all of these videos of him doing all these spectacular things that are getting pushed out on social media all the time. So he's in our consciousness as a guy who's supposed to ascend to something great, or at least that is on the radar. Whereas with Michael Jordan's son, it was oh he went to Illinois. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It, it wasn't there wasn't this hype around him. It was more like, oh, Michael Jordan's going to be in Champagne. This is awesome. Yeah, I wonder if Bobby Bonds was ever bummed out that uh, he went from being Barry Bonds. Oh yeah, Barry Bonds, borderline Hall of Famer, and his son's a player too. To well, you know, he, he played, but man, his son was one of the best ever. Maybe. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you, Colin. Thank you. And thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Coming up, more of our celebration of the Blues' one-year anniversary of winning the Stanley Cup in Boston. We're going to hear what uh, Freeze Pops was doing that night, too, next on 101 ESPN. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.